couple of announcements before we begin this morning. First of all, we got a letter this week from a taper in Dallas. No, he's a taper in Houston, lives on Dallas Street. He says, I'm 35 years old and have been a believer in Christ since my youth. However, for years I was nothing but a carnal Christian. Then he goes on and says, a few years ago the Lord began to deal with me, challenging me to live up to... Uh, live up to what I profess to believe. For the first time in my life, I dedicated myself to studying the Bible and praying on a regular basis. It's amazing what God can do in a person's life when they seek Him. God began to make radical changes in my life, developing within me a tremendous appetite for His Word. And as I began to study, I realized that for all practical purposes, I was biblically ignorant. I grew up in a Christian home, but had received very little biblical teaching. Then about a year ago, a friend of mine introduced me to the tape ministry at Preston City Bible Church. I was studying dispensationalism versus Reformed theology, and he mentioned that you had a series on God's plan for the ages. I ordered several from that series and have borrowed several others from my friend. I've been truly blessed by God through your teaching and ministry. I have a deep need for solid Bible teaching and instruction on doctrine. Through the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the generosity of your church, I am able to get both. So that's always encouraging when we get letters like that from folks out there who we don't know, who are getting tapes, and a lot of folks are downloading messages off the Internet. We have no idea how many people are being encouraged and strengthened and growing as a result of the tape ministry here. Then I have one other announcement regarding a man who's been on listening to tapes from here since almost the inception of our tape ministry, and just about the same time he was uh, diagnosed with ALS, which is also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and on the evening of December 23rd, Mike McDonald went home to be with the Lord after suffering for about five years with this disease. Now, he's a, he's a friend of mine down in Houston, and had been on this ministry, and it's just been tremendous to watch the impact that that suffering has had on a number of people down there. Uh, one individual took him into his home over the last three years when he was basically unable to take care of himself, and even though he was married, his wife worked, she was unable to take care of him, so another family took him in and took care of him. Every night after his wife got off work, they would go over, she would go over to him, and, and while he was lying in bed, they would turn on the tape recorder because Mike wanted to know if they got another tape from Preston City Bible Church that day. So, and apparently from what she told me the other night, they listened to their daily tape, and then they, there were a few friends that came over, and then he went to be with the Lord. So there will be a memorial service for him uh, this Friday in Houston, and I will be going down to participate in that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. 
For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege and opportunity we have to this morning to gather together to worship around the study of your word and to fellowship around your word. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation to do so. We pray that you would continue to watch over this nation to give uh, wisdom and information to those who are guarding our borders, guarding our airports, those who are in charge of our security Father, we pray that you would foil the plots of those who would do us harm. Father, we pray that we would be able to capture the leaders of these terrorist groups that seek to destroy this nation. Father, we pray that uh, this nation would continue to have the uh, stability required in order to send out missionaries to many places around the world. Father, we pray for those missionaries that this church supports, that you would watch over them, protect them, keep them healthy, keep them strong. We pray that you would provide the resources they need to effectively carry out their ministry. Father, I specifically remember Jim Myers and the need there for a new place to meet for their church and for perhaps better facilities for their school. Father, we pray for us that you would uh, challenge us to not take lightly that which we have, that uh, we have a tremendous opportunity to study and to grow, and it's too easy to treat that uh, lightly and to forget how Rare it is today to have uh, such uh, Bible teaching. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with your word and that we might uh, not lose focus on the fact that our purpose here is to glorify you and that our task, therefore, is to make our spiritual life our number one priority. Uh, We pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to pause for an introduction. We're continuing our study of 1 Corinthians, but last week we made it down to 1 Corinthians 13.7, and in 1 Corinthians 13.8-13, we have the central passage that deals with the cessation of certain spiritual gifts, gifts we sometimes refer to as sign gifts, other times temporary gifts, but this is the central passage for establishing the fact that some spiritual gifts were temporary in nature and would not continue throughout the church age. Now, what's interesting, theologically speaking, is that in the last 30 years, there's been a tremendous amount of debate over this passage. And we've covered it briefly before when we've, when we've studied the issue of, of tongues. And you know that our position is that uh, this passage teaches that tongues will cease and that that is a reference to the fact that tongues will stop its need because of the purpose of the gift and is no longer operational after 70 A.D. However, that position has been challenged, 
And I remember when I was a student at Dallas Seminary back in the 70s, that position was almost ridiculed by by the professors and by others who were not charismatic, certainly did not uh, believe in anything that Pentecostal theology holds holds to. Nevertheless, uh, it was considered to be the least supportable of all of the views on this passage. And as a result of that, one was almost uh, considered theologically naive and exegetically backward if one held to the position that that the that tongues cessation here had to do with the closing of the canon that is the view that when the perfect comes that the perfect there would be identified with the closing of the canon and so that threw a number of students into quite a turmoil trying to figure out a strong argument from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 if that indeed could be held as a basis for the cessation, cessation of tongues. And that uh, view, that it, that is, that the perfect here does not relate to the canon and the closing of the canon, is still a view that is not respected in academic circles, although I am uh, pleased to announce that there have been two articles. One came out in the Dallas Seminary Theological Journal, Bibliotheca Sacra, about six or seven years ago that took that position. And then I uh, wrote an article that's been accepted for publication next December on the same position. So those are the only two articles out there. But as I've studied this over the last uh, 15 years, I've come to realize that not only is the position that the perfect is the closing of the canon and the tongues would cease prior to the closing of the canon. Not only is that the strongest position, but if you don't take that position, there is no basis for saying that anything ceases. And we'll get into that when we get into the exegesis of the passage. But the tongues movement, as it's called, the charismatic movement or Pentecostal movement, the tongues movement in the 20th century, which is a unique phenomenon to the 20th century, is a movement that has radically transformed uh, the church or the, and the approach to worship and music and all kinds of things in this generation. In fact, it is a new movement. It began, the modern tongues movement began on January 1st, 1901. So it was uniquely a 20th century movement. And at the beginning of the century, there were no Pentecostals or Charismatics. By the end of the century, fully 50% of professing Christians throughout the world identified themselves in some way, shape, or form with the Pentecostal Charismatic position. Now, that is an astounding movement. And because of its growth, because of its popularity, by the end of the, uh, another example of its popularity, by the end of the 20th century, I would guess, I don't have exact figures, but just from my knowledge and observation, I would say that almost all uh, Christian religious uh, television stations, per se, not programs, but stations, such as Trinity Broadcasting Network and several others, were controlled by Pentecostals or Charismatics. Same thing is true about most uh, Christian radio stations. In fact, Christian music is dominated by people who have 
a Pentecostal charismatic theology. And so that theology, which is more than simply speaking in tongues, never forget that. It's not, that's its most obvious uh, external manifestation, but it is part of a whole theological uh, concept and view of God and man and how man has a relationship with God and how man is to worship God. Of course, that brings into play all kinds of things, and that has impacted the modern church in incredible ways. They have set the agenda for worship. They have set the agenda for music. They dominate in the hymnals. You can just pick up even our hymnal, and there's a certain number of more contemporary hymns and other things in that hymnal that are written by uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics, and their theology leaks through at places, and so it has an impact and has radically changed the nature of Christianity in the 20th century. So I want to take some time, since we are on this passage in the last half of chapter 13, and all of chapter 14 deals with the the temporary gifts, specifically tongues, and when we get into chapter 14, the gift of prophecy. So I want to take some time to really understand what's going on here and try to uh, answer some questions that some of you may have as well as to provide you the information you need so that you can uh, deal with family members or friends or other folks that have questions and concerns in this particular area. As I said, 1 Corinthians 13, 8-13, is the central passage for the cessation of tongues. Now, in the in Christian publishing, the last oh, 15, maybe 20 years at the outside, there has been a, a popular approach to controversial subjects that has been taken on by different publishers. And usually these books are presented as five views on the Christian life, four views on sanctification, uh, three views on the gospel and law, you know, four views on the rapture. And these are great books for serious theological students, seminary students, who are trying to hone their thinking skills. And what you will have in these kinds of books is a proponent of the different positions. There may be three or four or five different positions. And you will have a proponent of each one, and he will write a 20- or 30-page paper explaining, defending his particular position on whatever it might be. And then the other three or four writers will respond and interact with him. And then you'll go to the second guy, and he has his paper, and the other four or five guys interact with him. And it teaches you to understand the differences between these different views, what their strengths and weaknesses are, and to look at this in sort of a debate, type, a written debate-type format, which gives you a better understanding of, of, uh, of how to think through and understand some of these issues. And it's interesting that there was a book that came out about, oh, I guess five or six years ago on the tongues movement and had four different positions on the, on the tongues movement. And the man who wrote the position defending, uh, the cessationist position, there were four different positions now, three of them all held to some form of continuation of the sign gifts. Only one man of the, of the group held to a cessationist position, and uh, he'd never even mentioned 1 Corinthians 13, 
8 to 13. And that just is to show you how uh, this view has lost its level of respect. In fact, one of the men who responded to the position, I think his view, view is um, what was along the lines of, you know, open but not convinced. He's open to the continuation of the gifts, but he's not convinced they continue, was a Ph.D. from Dallas Theological Seminary, well-respected uh, theological professor from a school out on the West Coast. And the first comment he made in his response to that article, that first article on this, uh, explaining why uh, these gifts had ceased, his first comment was to to uh, notice that First Corinthians thirteen eight to thirteen wasn't even mentioned, and he went on to show that without using this passage, it's almost impossible to prove that the, some of the gifts have ceased. And what caused that cessation? Because if you remove this passage from the argument, there's no other passage that clearly states that tongues have ceased or that give you a clear point in history of when they would cease. And all you're left with is theological deduction. And there's nothing wrong with theological deduction, but theological deduction that gets too far removed from precise, clear statements in the Scripture ends up being a he said, he said kind of thing when it comes to theological debate. So I want to take some time the next two or three weeks to try to answer a number of questions, deal with the details of the text, and give you an understanding of what's going on both today and in the ancient world. Tongues is not something that's new. The modern tongues movement is new in its expression of theology and certain theological concepts, and we'll get to that eventually. But the idea of speaking in tongues, and here I really want to try to make a a distinction, and I want us to understand this distinction, and, I, and I'm hoping in my vocabulary I can I can become more consistent with this. First of all, I'm going to use terms like religious, utterance, or ecstatic utterance to refer to the kind of non-biblical gibberish. And in some rare cases, I think there is a legitimate uh, there's legitimate evidence that people have have uh, spoken in some sort of legitimate language they never learned, and I will call all of this glossolalia. And glossolalia, G-L-O-S-S-O-L-A-L-I-A, comes from the Greek word glossa, which means, which is translated tongue, and although it refers to the physical organ in your mouth, it is the word that is used to talk about languages. And in most languages, the word that is used to refer to a language is the word tongue. Whether you're talking about Russian or German or Latin or French, the word that they have that refers to languages is comparable to our word tongue. Now, that gets confusing when we keep talking about the spiritual gift of tongues because what's happened as a result of the modern charismatic movement is that word tongue 
speaking in tongues no longer is restricted to speaking in a known or legitimate human language, but has come to also be applied to this kind of uh, ecstatic utterance that's really gibberish. It's not a legitimate language at all. So the word glossolalia has been constructed. Uh, Lalane is the uh, Greek uh, infinitive to, meaning to speak, and so the word glossolalia means to speak in tongues. So we'll use that as a term for religious utterance or ecstatic utterance. All of those terms are somewhat synonymous. Then over here, I'm going to try to use the term languages when referring to the biblical gift of languages, which was bestowed on a few during the apostolic era. It is not in, in, it is, does not include ecstatic utterance or gibberish, but involved speaking a language. It may not even be a known language. You might have had someone who suddenly spoke a certain language, and they didn't even know what that language was. They couldn't identify it. Obviously, they were speaking in another language, but they did not know what the language was. See, you don't have to know what a language is to know it's a language. Anyone who is a linguist understands that a, a spoken utterance has certain characteristics if it is a legitimate language. If it does, if it is not a legitimate language, they can distinguish between just gibberish or somebody making up a language. You know, you've heard Robin Williams make up languages during his, you know, comedy routines. You know, they sound pretty good, but a linguist could, could listen to that and identify the fact that this is an American speaker using American, uh, uh, phonemes in order to construct something that sounded like Russian or Yiddish or German or whatever. So you have legitimate languages and they all have certain structures to them that, that linguists can identify. And I've pointed this out to, to the congregation in the past. There have been a number of attempts by linguists. One of the most famous was by a man named William Samarin, who wrote a book of Tongues of Men and of Angels. And he was a uh, recognized linguist, and he had thousands of hours of recorded tongue speech and he of uh, of glossolalic utterances that he analyzed hoping that they would show that somewhere in all of these charismatic pentecostal churches somebody who was claiming to speak in tongues was actually speaking a legitimate language and his conclusion was that he never found such. It was all obviously gibberish based on the vowel patterns, the consonantal patterns, the uh, syllabic structure, the grammar structure of English. It's an, obviously an English speaker or a Spanish speaker or maybe some other language who happened to be speaking in gibberish based on their own language. So that was discernible. There have been other studies done, but no linguist has ever done an analysis of of glossolalia and concluded that it was uh, someone speaking a legitimate language. Now, what you'll see, as we've discussed already, is that charismatics come along, and they, although it may not be a known language, and the interesting thing is at the birth of the modern Pentecostal movement in the 20th century, they initially thought that when people got this gift, it would enhance missions. And they would go forth and they would be able to go to China and Japan and India and they would be able to take the gospel and speak in those languages. And when Agnes Osmond, who was the first one to speak in tongues on January 1st, 1901, did so, they all claimed it was Chinese. But then when they got her in front of some Chinese, no Chinese could understand her. 
And so it, be, it was not long before they had to backtrack and said, well, this is an angelic language, or it's a Holy Spirit language, or it's a prayer language. But they always have to end up saying that it's some kind of language. Well, even if it were, and I'm using a second-class condition, if it were, but it's not, even if it were an angelic language or a Holy Spirit language or a prayer language, it would still have to follow certain patterns and structures, and you could still demonstrate whether or not it did that or whether it was just random, chaotic uh, so, uh, syllable structure. And so linguists are able to do that. So there's never been any kind of, of uh, demonstration that anyone in the modern era has spoken in language, a language that they did not go through the rigorous learning process. So let's go back in history, and what I want to show as we do this is that there has been, since ancient times, there has been the practice of religious utterance and ecstatic utterance as a key to spirituality. That going back to at least a 1,000 B.C., we have evidence that in pagan religions, there is the attempt for the for the worshiper to become so identified with the god or goddess that he is worshiping that this god or goddess takes control of his body, takes control of his vocal cords, and speaks through him, and this is a sign of super-spirituality. But that is not what happens biblically. Yet, because of a certain similarity on the surface... Many people in the ancient world confuse the biblical gift of languages with this religious ecstatic utterance that they grew up with. So let's look at some evidence of, of ecstatic utterance in history. The most ancient uh, evidence that we have is from the report of Winamon. Winamon was a young man who was a worshiper of the Egyptian god Ammon. And the report of Wen-Amun, which is dated approximately 1100 B.C., so this predates the New Testament by 1100 years, predates David by about 100 years, King David. And he was in, in Byblos, and there's a report that as he was worshiping Amun in the temple, he was overwhelmed in a state of frenzy, which continued throughout the night, and he spoke in some ecstatic uh, language. Now, we don't know if it was a legitimate language or just religious frenzy, just gibberish, but it's clear that the tongues was the direct result of this kind of possession and control by a god, although it just could have been brought on through emotion, which is true in a lot of cases. Plato also reports religious ecstatic speech, and this is roughly the 5th century uh, B- B.C., reports ex- ex- religious ecstatic speech in the Phaedrus, the Ion, and the Timaeus. Now let me spell those for you. The Phaedrus, the Ion, and the Timaeus. In these accounts, in these writings, we can observe that in each instance reported by Plato, the speaker had no control over his mental faculties. He did not know what he was saying. There was a need for some sort of interpreter or a diviner who would tell what was said. 
and the person was allegedly under the control of a god. So Plato gives evidence of this. Virgil, writing about 70 to 19 B.C., the first century B.C., mentions a Sibylline priestess on the Isle of Delos in the Aeneid. And she would go into an ecstatic state where she was unified with the spirit of Apollo. Now remember that Apollo, Dionysius, and Sibylle are the key gods and goddesses when it comes to the first century A.D. So she was unified in spirit with Apollo, and she began to speak in tongues and ecstatic utterance. Sometimes there was... They they claim that it was known language. Now, this is in pagan Greek worship of Apollo that she was probably possessed by a demon and spoke in a legitimate or a known language as well as an incoherent gibberish. Then when we get a little closer to our our time, we have the Pythoness, the oracle at Delphi. Now, she was symbolized by a python, and the Oracle of Delphi had to do with the worship of Apollo during part of the year and the worship of Dionysius, the god of wine, another part of the year. Now, Dionysius was a god who came in from Asia Minor, that's modern Turkey. And so that was brought over and over, and as well, there was a worship of the goddess Sibylle over in Asia Minor. Now, later on, that's going to play a part in the history as well. So it's that part of the world. Now, some four centuries later, a Christian writer, one of the church fathers by the name of Chrysostom, made the following observation about uh, the Pythoness of Delphi. He writes, this same Pythoness, then is said, being a female, to sit at times upon the tripod of Apollo astride, and thus the evil spirit ascending from beneath and entering the lower part of her body fills the woman with madness, and she with disheveled hair begins to play the bacchanal and to foam at the mouth, and thus began in a, in, thus being in a frenzy to utter the words of her madness. So she would, this is just north of Corinth now. Remember, we're studying uh, the epistle to the Corinthians, and this is just about 20 or 30 miles from the Oracle of Delphi. This was something they all grew up with. They, they were familiar with this kind of an operation. It wasn't anything unusual, and First uh, Corinthians is the only uh, epistle of the New Testament that even deals with or mentions this practice of tongues. Also, at the same time in, in the Greek world, there was the rise of what was known as mystery religions from about the 2nd century B.C. on up to the 1st century. You had a number of these mystery religions that developed. They were all mystical and emotional in their orientation, not too different from the rise of a lot of New Age religions that we see in our own uh, culture, not too dissimilar from some of the more extreme charismatic groups as well. You had the rise of the Osiris cult in Egypt, the Mithra cult, which began in Persia, the Eleusinian mysteries in Greece, the Dionysian worship, and the Orphic cults in Greece. An ecstatic utterance was associated with numerous other groups, such as the Basides and the Sibylline oracles, as well as others. So the point you should get from this is throughout the ancient world, from at least 1100 B.C. up to the New Testament period, you had a, a, a counterfeit tongue, so to speak, a, a an ecstatic utterance that was 
uh, typical of many ancient Near Eastern religions where they thought that the way to become spiritual and identified with their God was to go into some sort of ecstatic trance where the God entered into the body of the individual, controlled their body, and then spoke through, through that individual. So we see that there is a background of a pseudo-tongues or a pseudo-language, an ecstatic utterance that runs throughout all kinds of religions and countries in the ancient world. Furthermore, there are other occurrences of this sort of ecstatic utterance, this glossolalic speech. In other religions, there is a sect of Hinduism that practices this. The uh, Sufi Muslims, the whirling dervishes that you see, they practice glossolalia. There is a tribe of Eskimos in Greenland that have services led by an individual called the Angakak, who's the shaman of the tribe, and they have their uh, religious uh, meetings where they beat the drums and sing and dance and and there's also uh, a lot of nudity which must be quite cold in Greenland. Tell you if I was nude in Greenland I'd probably start speaking in tongues too. So the there are the Eskimos of Greenland who practice glossolalia and there are groups in Tibet that uh, in among Buddhists that practice glossolalia. And V Dr. V Raymond Edmund who was the chancellor of Wheaton College about a generation ago wrote a, wrote on this and and uh, contributed this comment. He said, one of our Wheaton graduates who was born and reared on the Tibetan border tells of hearing the Tibetan monks in their ritual dances speak in English with quotations from Shakespeare with profanity like drunken sailors. You know, I always like self-righteous Christians, you know. They've got to be drunken sailors. Like regular sailors don't use profanity, right? Any of you, you Navy guys never heard that, right? So they, they had profanity like drunken sailors, or in German or French or in languages unknown. Then he says, quite recently, a retired missionary of the China Inland Mission told of the same types of experience. Now, this is really anecdotal evidence, and I always have a problem when you come to talking about tongues with anecdotal evidence because you always hear somebody who is at some church and heard somebody speak in some Chinese dialect or they spoke in Spanish, and you hear these kinds of things, and they're prevalent especially in uh, charismatic literature that tries, tries to support the practice. Well, so-and-so went on a missions trip, and they're deep in the heart of you know, the rainforest, and suddenly they started speaking in uh, some language that they had never learned. The trouble is you never hear first-hand accounts of this. You always hear somebody get, tells us about some pastor he heard who did this, and uh, it's never first-hand, so I, I just automatically discount all of that. What you have to have is some hard evidence, not just rumor, not just anecdotes. You have to have uh, clear attestation by witnesses and uh, if possible, recordings. I mean, if you're going to make these kinds of cases, let's come right out with uh, dependable evidence. But his evidence indicates, at least, that not only were they speaking, these Tibetans speaking in uh, ecstatic utterance or gibberish, but they would also quote from uh, English writing such as Shakespeare as well as profanity, but it was a legitimate language. Now, this would, could be explained through demon possession and is very possible. 
that that's a basis for some tongue speech. Not all, but some. You know, that's one approach that non-charismatics use for so long. They just said it's all demonic. Well, folks, it's not all demonic. Their theology may be uh, from the pit of hell, because any false non-biblical theology is from the pit of hell and is uh, demonic, because all cosmic thinking is demonic. But that doesn't mean that that when they get all emotional and start speaking in tongues, that it's a demon. Anybody can do it. I read a report years ago by a graduate student working on her Ph.D. at Princeton who was not a Christian and did analysis of all kinds of people, Hindus, Buddhists, Mormons. Mormons started off speaking, having glossolalic utterance as part of their uh, worship back in the 1830s. And she analyzed all of this, and she said, you know, anybody can do it, just like, Anybody can play the piano. Now, some of us can play the piano quite well and have a natural talent for it, and other people just do really well to be able to play chopsticks. But everybody can play something on the piano if they're trained well enough, just as some people have a natural affinity for it. Well, the same is true in tongue speech. Some people just have a natural affinity for it, and they can do it. They're just That's just the way they're made. Others would hardly be able to do it uh uh, if they got drunk, but apparently it is a natural ability to have some kind of glossolalic utterance and to release control of your vocal cords and breathe a certain way, and, and this kind of thing will automatically happen. So what we see so far is that outside of Christian circles, there is a practice of glossolalia that is evidence in all kinds of religious context. And then when we come to the Bible, what we're going to see is that the gift of languages, at least part of its function, was to serve as a sign of judgment on Israel. And part of its function was, like other miracles, to attest the doctrine, the theology, and the orthodoxy of the apostles or those who exhibited these miraculous gifts. Now, the question is, if you have... Uh, someone speaking in glossolalia who is a heretic or who clearly espouses bad theology or heretical theology. They have a heretical view of the person of Christ or they don't understand the gospel. They have a works-oriented salvation. Can Would, would God validate bad theology with a miraculous gift? No, of course not. But what you see happening within so-called Christianity during the church age is groups that claim to speak in with the, the biblical gift of languages really have a bad theology. So what I've done so far is just to show you that, yes, there's some strange practices related to ecstatic utterance that dominates false religions. And it happens across the board and down through the ages from the ancient world up to the modern world. Now let's look at the evidence that of alleged occurrences in the church since the close of the canon. In the early part of the church, we have uh, references to the miraculous gifts, to prophecy, and a few allusions to the gift of languages. One of the early church fathers by the name of Justin Martyr lived from 110 to 165, so he is in the early part of the 2nd century A.D., 
And in one of his writings, he makes the statement, the prophetical gifts remain with us. Now, of course, the charismatics jump on that and say, see, 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 Justin says that they, they can maintain with us. But he's writing in, a, in an epistle to Trypho, who was a Jew, and in context, he's talking about the Old Testament. And what he's really saying is, as Christians, we still honor and utilize the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament. And he says these prophetical gifts, that is, the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, stay with us. We still use them and we still honor them. He is not talking about speaking in tongues. It's not a statement that's saying that prophecy continues. You have to be careful how you use these, um, these writers. You can't go back and impose on their, uh, their terminology our modern meetings. For one thing, they, they live in an era when there, there's very little technical theological terminology. So, so you have to be very careful how, how to use them. Irenaeus was another, uh, second century church father who lived from 120 AD to 202 AD. He was from Asia Minor originally. He was educated in Rome and then eventually became the Bishop of Lyon in France and uh, from uh, Irenaeus, we see that there's no direct evidence in anything he wrote, and he wrote quite a bit. He is a, he was premillennial, a great defender of premillennialism in the first century, and there's a lot of information in Irenaeus. He's he's very orthodox, uh, had some profound thinking on the Trinity at a time when there wasn't even a word for Trinity, and it wasn't clearly understood. No hypostatic union terminology had yet been developed, but he when he speaks of the use of the miraculous gifts, he always speaks of them as in the past tense. He doesn't give any indication that they were still in operation during his lifetime or that he had ever seen them. He is simply referring to remembrances from their operation in the first century. Then you had a heretic who came along by the name of Montanus. Montanus, and he founded a sect called the Montanists, and he had two uh, female priestesses with him, and they he claimed to be the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. And before he was saved, if he was saved, but we'll assume that he was, before he was saved, he had been a priest of Sibylle. Now, remember I said that uh, among the Greeks you had the, the Pythonists of Delphi who worshipped Apollo and Dionysius was there, and Dionysius came over from Asia Minor, and there was also a, a relationship with the worship of Sibylle. And in the worship of Sibylle, you had the same kind of ecstatic utterance and tongue speech and everything else. And, and Montanus had been a, a priest of Sibylle prior to his salvation. So he just brought all that ecstatic uh, operation with him when he came into Christianity. And this is what I've been saying about the, the Corinthians, is that they're saved with a certain amount of theological baggage, and rather than dumping their theological garbage by the intake of doctrine, what they were doing was they were taking their theological frame of reference from paganism and superimposing that on their understanding of Christianity. This is the same thing that Montanus did a, a century later. Then a rather well-known Montanist by the name of Tertullian, who was a, a well-known church father who wasn't too extreme, but he was a part of that that sect. Uh, he's also the one who gave us the word Trinitas for Trinity. Uh, Tertullian uh, had an, a lot of, there were a lot of writings by Tertullian, but there is no explicit statement by him on the continuation of speaking in tongues or 
that he spoke in tongues. So he is silent on the subject, and you don't argue from silence, but when somebody's in this kind of position, they don't say anything, well, that says something. Uh, Origen, another church father in the early uh, century, lived from 185 A.D. to 254, wrote, Moreover, the Holy Spirit gave signs of his presence at the beginning of Christ's ministry, and after his ascension he gave still more. But since that time, these signs have diminished. So by the beginning of the 3rd century A.D., there are clear statements being made that these gifts are no longer in operation. And then earlier I quoted from Chrysostom about the operation of the Oracle of Delphi, and in the same paragraph, uh, of his commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, Christus, Chrysostom really doesn't say much about the gift of tongues other than, you know, these things we understand used to happen, but we don't understand what it's talking about anymore because it doesn't happen anymore. So there's clear evidence by the time you get into the 3rd century that these gifts are not only not in operation, but the writers of that era don't even know what they were anymore. They're not even sure. Uh, following or during the Middle Ages, there were a number of groups that popped up here and there in the Roman Catholic uh, milieu, and mis- there were various mystical groups that claimed to speak in ecstatic utterance. And then after the Reformation, you had several uh, fringe and heretical groups that claimed to uh, speak in uh, languages, but it was just ecstatic speech. You had the seven all prophets, which was young children who were uh, going into trances and their bodies would become very stiff and they would uh, prophesy and speak in ecstatic utterance. You had another group uh, within the Roman Catholic Church, the Jansenists, which were a mystical, uh, mystical group. Our sect within Roman Catholicism also claimed this gift, the Quakers and the Shakers. See, that's why they were called Quakers and Shakers, because they quaked and they shook. The Holy Spirit came on them, and, and it was a an ex, kind of ecstatic experience. And some claimed a possibility of speaking in tongues, but it didn't really continue, and there's little evidence of it, and there's a lot of debate even among, uh, among scholars as to whether they actually had ecstatic utterance or not. The Mormons, clearly a heretical theology that has no basis in truth, also had a lot of ecstatic utterance. So, you know, would would God be validating the theology of all these fringe groups through a, a genuine miracle? I don't think so. Then we come down through the through the middle of the 1800s, and starting in the 1850s, you had a, a shift begin to take place in American uh, theology, the Christian life. And what had happened, going back to Charles and John Wesley in the 1700s, they had a doctrine of perfectionism, that a Christian could come along and and uh, reach a stage of commitment where he was so close to God he would live without sin. And then from the period from the 1800s to the 1850s, the Methodist movement as such saw a real decline in its attendance, in, in membership in America. The churches lost members. And so people began to ask the wrong question. They always do. When people start leaving a church, everybody wants to say, what did we do wrong? What are we missing out here? Why isn't God blessing us anymore? Well, what they didn't have that we have today is is the value of hindsight in history. The reason that their churches and their church membership was declining was because everybody was 
going west. They were leaving. They weren't losing members because people just weren't coming to church anymore. They were losing members because everybody was getting on a covered wagon and heading out west somewhere, and they were going beyond the uh, Alleghenies and the Adirondacks, and so there were very few churches there. And so all the all the denominations, Methodist, Baptist, Roman Catholic, Episcopal, Presbyterian, all experienced a tremendous decline in church membership during that period from about 1820 to 1850. And it's because they, they, people were just leaving and going west and getting killed by the Indians and setting up new farms and all kinds of things were going on, but they weren't, they weren't coming to, uh, you know, First Presbyterian of, uh, Boston anymore. Or First Methodist. So a woman by the name of Phoebe Palmer who lived in New York, her husband was a physician, she came up with this brilliant insight that we're missing out on something. We have to go back to, to Wesley and what Wesley taught was this, Second operation, you get some things at the cross, but at some point down the road, there's this second operation of dedication, commitment, whatever it may be, that takes you into this higher plane, and we've quit teaching that. Now we've got to get back to this. So you see what developed was this two-step theology. The first step is you get part of it at the cross, and the second step is you get the next work of grace at this point of dedication. Now, this idea of two-step theology manifested itself in a movement called holiness theology. And you had the rise of holiness denominations, such as the Church of the Nazarene. And you had a number of other holiness uh, denominations develop. Uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance was a holiness group. You had a Keswick theology had elements of holiness theology in it, where you reach this second point of grace. And some people put more emphasis on it, some people less. But by the end of the 1900s, people were beginning to identify this second work of grace with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then they came up with the idea by the late 1890s that you would know that you had the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you had entered into this higher life. See all that terminology, victorious Christian life, higher life, the secret life of the Christian, all that buys into some form of this two-step theology. They began to say, though, by the 1890s, that you would know if you had this baptism of the Holy Spirit if you spoke in tongues. And then a man named Charles Parham had a small Bible institute in Bethel, or, or excuse me, called Bethel Bible Institute in Topeka, Kansas. And at a watch night service, you always have to watch out for those watch night New Year's Eve services, they had a watch night service and a prayer meeting, and they were praying that the Holy Spirit would descend on them and they would speak in tongues. And so just after midnight, Agnes Osmond began to uh, throw her head back and speak in what they thought was Chinese, and that became the birth of the modern Pentecostal movement, uh, uh, January 1st, 1901. And that was characterized by the belief that baptism of the Holy Spirit was after salvation, that baptism of the Holy Spirit was signified always by speaking in tongues that every believer needed to be baptized by the Holy Spirit and to speak in tongues. That was a sign of higher spirituality. And the fourth thing that characterized them was that they left their denominations. If they were Baptists, if they were Methodists, they left and they 
They started their own denomination. They started Pentecostal denominations. And so this stage is called Pentecostalism because they wanted to experience what the apostles experienced on the day of Pentecost. And this is what evidenced them. Their baptism of the Holy Spirit came after salvation. It was signified by speaking in tongues. That was for every believer, and they left their denominations. Then on April the 3rd, 1961, excuse me, 1960, April the 3rd, 1960, Dennis Bennett, who was the, and you can still see him on TBN every now and then, Dennis Bennett, who was the rector of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California, spoke in tongues. Now, up to that point, if you spoke in tongues, you got kicked out of your denomination. But he wouldn't let him kick him out. So he stayed. And that gave birth to what became known as the charismatic movement. So you always wanted to know what's the difference between a charismatic and a Pentecostal. Well, the basic difference is that Pentecostals left and went into their own denominations like Assembly of God and um, United Pentecostal Church and other groups. And Charismatics stayed in their denomination. They still had the same view that baptism in the Holy Spirit is a second work of grace that comes after salvation signified by speaking in tongues. And every believer needed to get that, but you stayed where you were. So all of a sudden now you have Pentecostal, you have Charismatic uh, Baptists and Charismatic Catholics and Charismatic Episcopals and Charismatic whatever, and theology didn't make any difference. What mattered was the experience. So unity is now going to be based on experience, not on doctrine. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Ephesians 4 says it's the unity of the faith. That is unity of doctrine, not unity at the expense of doctrine. Now, what happened after that in the mid-1970s, about 1975, was you had two people, a man by the name of John Wimber and a man by the name of Peter Wagner. Peter Wagner taught in the missions department at Fuller Seminary in uh, California, and John Wimber pastored a church that became known as the Vineyard Church, and so this later became also known as the Vineyard Movement, also known as the Signs and Wonders Movement. And uh, they started what came to be called the third wave. See, the first wave was the first wave of the Holy Spirit, the Pentecostal movement. Then the second wave of the Holy Spirit in the 20th century was the Charismatic movement. And this became the third wave. And there were some important distinctions here. There was an attempt to be more biblical. And so if you listen to some of their teachers, they would, instead of emphasizing so much of the emotional, they would try to actually exegete and exposit the text. And that really sucked in a couple of people. Three professors from Dallas Seminary in the mid-'80s got sucked into this movement, and they were quite bright. I mean, one of them, uh, two of them were Hebrew professors of mine back in the 70s. One of them had a doctorate from uh, Dallas Seminary and a second doctorate from Harvard. The other one had a doctorate from Dallas and did postgraduate work at the University of Basel in Switzerland. I mean, these were very intelligent men who had been uh, 
had had been very much against the Pentecostal movement. In fact, one of the men, the man who had his Ph.D. from Harvard, had written an excellent master's thesis when he was a student back in the 60s at Dallas on why the use of Isaiah 28 and 1 Corinthians 14 demonstrated that the that tongues was a sign for Israel. Excellent uh, master's thesis, but he did a flip-flop for a number of reasons, which I won't go into. But there was an attempt to be biblical. And baptism of the Holy Spirit, for the most part, was said to be at salvation. And uh, I went to a spiritual warfare conference at the Vineyard Church in Anaheim uh, back in about 1988 or 89. I think it was 89. And I was went to a workshop on getting baptized by the Holy Spirit. And the guy who was leading the workshop said, now, you know, the term baptism of the Holy Spirit is a word that really upsets a lot of people. They're afraid we're going to get them into some sort of charismatic thing. So we don't use the word baptism. It just means to be immersed by the Spirit. So we just tell people, hey, have you been immersed by the Spirit? In other words, he's changing the terminology. He's really being deceptive. And he said, have you been immersed by the Spirit? No, well, get the Spirit now. Boom. And, you know, people would fall on the floor, and I'm sitting there praying to the Lord to protect me from the demonism or whatever that's going around. And that was that was exciting to go to these kinds of things and watch what was happening. So uh, anyway, they would say the baptism of the Holy Spirit for some people happened at salvation, and other people it happened after salvation. You know, whatever floats your boat. And they they were not going to make an issue out of that. And speaking in tongues wasn't for everybody. So they, there was an attempt to be more biblical, but there's still a but a much heavier emphasis on experiential uh, theology. Well, that gives you kind of a background as to what's going on and all the x acts and spasms down through um, church history. So let's look at what the text says at least. At least start in Acts 2. We don't have time to finish all this background this morning, but at least we'll get into the text of Scripture. Acts chapter 2. This is the first occurrence historically of the gift of languages. And it took place on the day of Pentecost, which Pente means five or fifty, and it takes place fifty days after the resurrection. Fifty days after the resurrection or seven weeks afterward, on a, and it always occurred on that Sunday after the um, first, first fruits were offered on on the resurrection Sunday was also the day of first fruits, and so 50 days later after the first sheaf was offered was the day of Pentecost. So Acts chapter 2 takes place after the... Lord has ascended. He ascended 40 days after the resurrection, so there's a 10-day gap there. And during that time, uh, rather than just sitting and waiting like the Lord had told them to do, Peter gets a little carried away at the end of Acts 1 and decides that they need a replacement for Judas. And so they're going to cast lots and decide who's got the spiritual gift of apostle. Now, spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit as we're studied, not by vote. And they're given at the instant of salvation. So you never hear from Matthias again because he really wasn't a, a disciple. But at the end of Acts 1, after they had 120 believers gather together and go through this charade of trying to elect a replacement apostle, at the very end of, of that chapter we read, And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now remember, there's no chapter division, no verse division. And so when you come to the first verse of the next chapter, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they 
which is your uh, third person plural pronoun, they were all with one accord in one place. Well, who were the they? Well, a lot of people think it was 120 or just a huge group of believers, and they're out by the temple, but they're in a house still, and this happened that morning at breakfast, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they, meaning the 11 apostles, basic rule of grammar is when you have a pronoun, it refers to its nearest antecedent, that is, the closest plural noun uh, preceding. And so when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they, they goes back to the nearest uh, antecedent, which is that last plural noun in verse 26, apostles. So it's the 11 that were all in one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the whole house. So what are the circumstances here? See, we have to ask certain questions as we go through Acts. Who's involved? What were the circumstances? What's the order of events? And what were the what were the accompanying conditions? So what we see here is that there's a sound from heaven, a rushing mighty wind, filled the whole house where they were sitting, not the temple, but they're sitting there probably having breakfast when this happened. Then in verse 3, then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire. So there's a physical manifestation of flames, uh, uh, like tongues of fire over each individual. And then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. So it is a miracle of speech. Some people say, well, maybe it was just a miracle of hearing. Each person heard it in their own language. No, it is a miracle of utterance, which is what the text says. And so they apparently left the house and went out, and they began to uh, teach and to witness and to speak to all the different folks. There must have been 150,000 uh, folks in Jerusalem for this special feast day. It was one of uh, three feast days in the spring when all the male, all Jewish males were expected to make a pilgrimage to the temple. And so they go out and they began to speak in these various native languages of all the, the folks that have come in from all over the Roman Empire, from North Africa, Egypt, uh, Libya, from Rome, from Asia, from uh, Asia Minor, from Parthia, from down from uh, from Arabia, they were from all over the, uh, the 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 known Roman world and beyond, and they were hearing the gospel in their own language. So this is the first occurrence of speaking in tongues. It happened simultaneously with receiving the Holy Spirit. But then this is the first time there's been this kind of reception of the Holy Spirit. So they're baptized with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, and speak in tongues all at the same time. There's accompanying overt manifestation of the uh, flames of fire and the sound of rushing wind. And they're speaking in legitimate languages. Now, we'll have to stop here and pick up our study of Acts and other passages next Sunday morning. But what we will see is there's no set pattern. They don't always speak in tongues. The problem with the charismatic Pentecostal movement is they want to go to Acts as if Acts is normative or prescriptive. But Acts is is history, and history tells you what happened, not what you are supposed to do. Unless it makes a point of saying, emulate this, it's simply telling what God did in history, not what God is always 
going to do in history. And so Acts is not the manual for the spiritual life. That comes in later revelation in the epistles with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to to be challenged with your work throughout history, and to recognize that we live in an era when there's a tremendous amount of false teaching and false doctrine. Father, we recognize that the salvation and the spiritual life are based on grace, not based on works, which is typical of so many of these cult groups and sect groups and those who have become deceived by Pentecostal theology. Salvation's by grace. It's not based on works. It's not based on some overt sign, but by the complete finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not sure of your eternal life. You're not certain of your eternal destiny. You've been confused by a lot of religious claims and activities, and you want to know if it's possible uh, to be saved. And yes, it is. It is based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on uh, having certain religious experiences or not having certain religious experiences. It's not based on on uh, any kind of moral reformation, cleaning up your life, or any other human factor. It's based exclusively on what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and salvation is available freely to every individual in the human race, and it's based simply on grace. A free gift. All you have to do is to accept that gift, and you do so by believing that Jesus Christ died for you. At the instant of faith alone, you are uh, saved. You are you receive the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness. God declares you to be just, justified by faith alone, and He imputes to you His very own life, eternal life, uh, that can never be taken from you. Father, now as we study your word and we continue to apply it, we pray that you would challenge us with these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.